you know, the best products don't always win in healthcare, the best go-to-market strategies do. Because as we all know, who pays in healthcare? Is it Medicare and Medicaid and the health plans? Is it the employer? Is it the patient? Like the complexity of that and the reimbursement paradigm that we live in, it's pretty complex. It's tough to navigate it. And if you can crack that, like you're gonna, you're gonna go far. the Wonder Podcast. It's your host, CCB. And today we're having a conversation with yet another amazing individual who represents a lot of innovation in um, in a world that all of us are touched by. Uh, we have with us Megan's White, who's COO of Rock Health. Megan, well, thanks for coming to the Wonder Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. We've had other conversations with you. You've been very generous with your time and have been on um, paneled conversations with us. And it's so uh, astonishing, I think, to many of us to understand what Rock Health is all about. So I'd love you, first off, before we get to that, tell us, I know when you were five years old, you didn't say, I want to be COO of Rock Health. So what, <laughs> how did you decide, how did you get, make your way the, the path to becoming where you are today? Yes, absolutely. Um, I will say a pivotal point for me was in college. I really had no idea what I wanted to grow up um, and be. And I started taking some courses on medical ethics and on global health and on health policy. And I always knew that I wouldn't be a clinician. My mom is an athletic trainer. And so she's very tactile. She loves injuries. Like injuries are like exciting to her. And I feel like I'm going to faint. And so I always knew that being a clinician was not for me, but I was really drawn to healthcare. I was drawn to um, the challenges, the complexity, um, but also the intersectionality of it. That you know, it, it isn't just building the right healthcare system. It's also thinking about the environment. It's thinking about access to food. It's thinking about mental well-being and all these different components that ultimately contribute to us feeling physically and mentally well. Um, and I think I had an interesting conversation the other day with some of my colleagues on how do we each define health? And it is so intensely personal, um, but it's so intensely foundational to who we are and how we spend our lives. And so I was really drawn to that, ended up studying public policy, health policy, um, realized that uh, there was a lot of work to be done um, here in the U.S. Um, within our healthcare system. And so started working in the consulting and market research space because I thought it was really exciting to work with, uh, at the start of my career, hospitals and health systems, talk to health system executives, understand what challenges they were facing, talk to a lot of them. So then we could kind of start to source best practices and solutions. And I just loved being at that kind of consultant vantage point of getting to talk to a lot of people, a lot of experts, synthesizing what was working, what wasn't working, and then being able to kind of give collective advice and honestly, like tapping into the power of the network to learn from each other. Um, ultimately made my way to Rock Health. Uh, at the time, we were wholly based in San Francisco. Now we're pretty distributed. Um, but being from Los Angeles, wanted to be back in California. And then, of course, being in San Francisco, wanted to be more connected to the venture startup 
innovation side of healthcare, just because I saw so much potential. And so that's what, that's what brought me to, to rock health. Okay. So rock health has, has three arms and you are chief operating officer. So I want you to kind of describe the three arms and help us understand what your responsibility is within each one of those. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our mission is to make healthcare massively better through the use of emerging technology, largely software and data. Um, We have three different arms uh, and each of them help accomplish that mission in a different way. So the first is we have a venture fund. So we are investors. We are early stage investors. So we are investing in early stage digital health companies, typically at the seed or series A level. So oftentimes these companies do have a product. They may have an early pilot or a couple of early customers, but you know, typically it's a founding team and maybe a couple others um, still really figuring out how do they orient their products, what the market needs, what's the right go-to-market strategy. And we kind of help them with, um, with that launch into the market and finding some of those early customers. We recognized that a lot of those digital health entrepreneurs are selling into the big healthcare incumbents. So the way that they're going to disrupt and transform the industry is if they partner with pharma, if they partner with health systems, if they partner with health plans and self-insured employers to change the way that care is being discovered and delivered. So we decided that actually as part of our business, in addition to investing in the small companies, we wanted to advise the big companies as well. So that's how we created Rock Health Advisory, which is the second of the three legs of the Rock Health stool. In Rock Health Advisory, we are advising those big, largely healthcare incumbents. So all the players I just mentioned, we also work with some retail companies, some big tech companies, because they're all trying to figure out what's the slice of the healthcare pie that I can participate in. There's so much opportunity for change. So that's why you see the Googles, the Best Buys, the Walmarts of the world all moving into this space. And so within Rock Health Advisory, we do two things. We do strategy consulting. So deep dive projects to support these big companies on their digital health strategy. And then we also have a membership program. So it's a subscription model. So on an ongoing basis, we're working with about 30 biopharma companies, health systems, health plans to make sure that they are connected into the digital health startup ecosystem and that we're delivering them insights so that they know know, what's next when it comes to innovation. So that's the second leg is Rock Health Advisory. The third leg is rockhealth.org. So we actually have a not-for-profit as well. Um, The mission there is really to make sure that as we're changing the way care is delivered, we're increasingly integrating virtual care and new technologies, that that innovation is reaching all and that it's not just exacerbating these existing healthcare disparities that we see. And so rockhealth.org is really oriented on how can we support entrepreneurs and innovators in designing, especially for underrepresented populations? And then also, how do we make sure that funding is flowing in a more equitable way? Um, So they're really focused on how do we provide the support um, to uh, BIPOC founders, to women founders, to make sure that we're investing in people that have a really important and unique lens on how we can change healthcare for the better. So those are the three pieces. We invest in the little companies, advise the big ones, and then make sure that we're, we're doing it in a way that that's equitable. 
okay, you're making me sweat with all of that work. And I was just, I looked at your, I mean, I spent a lot of time on your website, which I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to go um, check out because there's so much information and there's so many um, valuable, valuable notes, I'm going to say about kind of what's happening in our world today. And particularly, obviously the world of health, but how many people are there at, at Rock Health? It's a good question. We're, we're pretty small, but mighty. There's about 30 of us. Uh, yeah. Time. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you have a lens into a lot of, uh, a lot of what's coming, a lot of what's needed, a lot of what is existing. Um, and you have a very, um, I'm going to say it, it feels so specific in the target audiences that you want to serve. That you want, that ultimately you want to be the um, the recipients of the value that Rock Health is developing. And could you talk a little bit about um, those four audiences? I'm going to say it looks like. Okay, let me just give you. It looks like um, as we're talking about digital health, um, that, that there are audiences that are underserved. Mm-hmm. That uh, that certainly um, in the in the mainstream healthcare system, we've got a lot going on and there are ups and downs, but there are, there are groups that have not been as, um, uh, uh, what's the right word have not, it's not been as, as accessible to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we talk about that a little tiny bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, I think that the, like, we've really had to interrogate what accessibility means, especially over the course of the pandemic, because accessibility used to mean that you could, you know, get an appointment with your doctor, be able to go to urgent care, the emergency room, and physically go to a space where someone is going to be treating you. And so that type of accessibility completely got up upended in March of 2020. Um, and for the first time, I would say a lot of people and institutions had to think about digital health as not just a nice to have, but a need to have. We had to find ways to connect with patients remotely in their home um, and also manage, try to manage a lot of conditions and chronic diseases that typically someone would need to physically go into an office space for. We had to try to figure out how do we do that? How do we monitor that and manage those illnesses remotely, because right now the only people that are really able to come and be served by the traditional healthcare system um, have COVID or really other urgent conditions that you know it need to be um, either quarantined uh, for quarantine purposes or need to be kind of physically in a space where they can operate or something like that. And so it, it, it really opened up. Um, I mean, it did a lot of things. It opened up, I think, a lot of consumers' perspectives of where and how healthcare could be delivered. It certainly did the same for providers. And then it also, I mean, admittedly, you know, we, we work in the venture space. It got a lot of investors thinking about and ultimately deploying a lot more capital into the space of digital health. And so I think we're now more in the phase of how do we sustain this progress? How do we kind of get to the next level of innovation? Because now we're all more on the same page that things like virtual care, remote patient monitoring, telemedicine are really here to stay and are really powerful tools. Um, I think one thing to your question, though, of like, how are those things impacting underserved populations? I think what we're really excited about is that innovators are really tuning into the needs of particular people and populations or people with a particular condition. So I'll give you an example. 
you know, primary care historically has been a service that is really kind of geographically uh, attuned. Uh, It's very focused on serving a general population in a certain geographic area. And so though, though a lot of people have had really positive experiences in primary care, it also hasn't necessarily been built with certain populations in mind. And so what's exciting and with virtual care, you start to see a lot more kind of narrow, but personalized use cases. So I'll give you an example. Maven and Tia are both um, women's health offerings. So what if you had a primary care experience that was really tuned to the needs of women? Women go underdiagnosed for a whole host of conditions, things like menstrual pain, um, uterine fibroids, endometriosis. These are things that women often suffer from for years and they aren't diagnosed. And so going to an environment that is tuned to these possibilities that are tuned to the woman's health experience can be really, really important. The same is true for um, underserved populations, where when we've looked at the research on how the queer population, so LGBTQ+, transgender folks are being treated in the healthcare system too often, and the numbers are just horrific. They are facing verbal abuse. They are sometimes facing physical abuse. And more often than not, they're just not seeing providers that are competent in providing gender-affirming care or care for, um, for queer folks. And so we see some virtual care companies popping up again, that are really tuned to the needs of that particular population. They're culturally competent providers. Um, and they are, you know, they're providing like a safe space. And honestly, that space is usually the person's home. If they're able to do a lot of this virtually, and we actually have seen a lot of uptake among that population, of these new telemedicine and wearable and remote monitoring tools that are coming out. So I'm really excited that if you kind of break down the geographic constraints of like physical locations in healthcare, it actually creates a business opportunity to build something that's more narrow and personalized, but now you can actually reach that particular population across many states or maybe even all states in the US, which is what creates like that, the business opportunity and the business case for those companies. So it's, it's super, super exciting to see. I think it's, um, I think it's really lovely that the, uh, you know, the um, silver lining on the cloud of the pandemic has been exposing in in education and in healthcare, you know, the gross inequities and and creating the opportunity uh, for greater attention to be paid and resources to be developed. So that's that's fantastic. And and of course, there's going to be a lot of work to to get yeah. at that. Um, so we were looking at, um, the nature of like the digital health funding and, um, and it looks like, and I'm going to say, I was, you know, looking, I look at statistics in lots of different ways Mm -hmm. and in a funny way, Q1 is always lower than almost any other quarter quarter. I mean, so, so I, you can get that feeling, but it looks like there's a dip kind of in some of the funding that's happened this year as compared to, and is that a result of so much more being placed in uh, over the pandemic time, or is there some, something else uh, behind that? Yeah. The, yeah, the dip is real. Um, It's, and I, I actually think that the dip is not, uh, just a Q1 dip, like we are going to see when we publish our H1 numbers that, um, in fact, there was a lot less um, funding going into digital health in the first half of this year compared to last year. Hmm. Last year was the biggest year we've ever seen. Um, I think 
in my mind, it is not a reaction to the digital health market. It is reaction to the broader market. So we see, um, we see financial crises, international crises that impact the markets. And what's happening is uh, you have kind of public market exits closing. So we have not seen uh, digital health companies going public this year, whereas we did see a bunch of them last year. Um, SPACs are kind of no longer being used as a vehicle for going public, even though that was popular the past couple of years. Um, M&A has even slowed down a little bit. And valuations are starting to, uh, anecdotally, it's it's kind of hard to get precise data on valuations, but anecdotally, what we're seeing is that valuations are kind of coming down from where they were last year. That said, valuations were really high last year, and a lot would say a bit too high. The way that we look at the market, though, is we think that the fundamentals are still there. So I wouldn't view kind of this, this lowering or kind of correction in funding as a signal that oh, we, you know, we need to pull back from investment in this space. Um, we think that the fundamentals are there. A lot of these solutions have been validated. The regulatory pathways are clear for the solutions that need that. There are clear and emerging go-to-market strategies. I think, though, that we're going to see a flight to quality. So I think investors are going to increasingly scrutinize the companies that they are putting um, dollars in. And you're just going to see a slightly different take approach from the innovators. You know, their investors are going to be giving them advice of, hey, it's, you know, it's time to, you know, don't expect to be flush with cash over the next six to 12 months, like really tighten your belts, right? Think about unit economics. I was talking to a founder and he was saying that maybe before when you had a lot of access to capital last year, they would do things like, hey, go work with a pharma company or go work with a health system. And they would subsidize some of the costs of a pilot to say, hey, we're going to take care of that. We have the cash available. Let's prove out our outcomes. And then we'll figure out the right financial arrangement to make this sustainable. He said, you know what? We're not doing that anymore. We need to see the unit economics and profitability from day one of our partnerships. And so they're really starting to bake that in. And so you're going to see like slightly different, a slightly different tone, I think, um, from entrepreneurs building in this space. We have unfortunately seen some companies with layoffs, kind of proactive layoffs, again, to in, in the spirit of um, uh, kind of maintaining a, a cash runway if they feel like there isn't going to be as, enough capital available. That said, so there's like that point of view. The other perspective is venture funds raised more money last year than ever before. And when venture funds raise money, they need to deploy that capital. So I actually like I, I don't think that we're going to see this dip continuing to dip just because VCs have so much capital that they need to deploy over the next few years. And so and I and I do think that digital health will continue to be an investment sector that uh, that remains attractive mm. to them. Okay, I want to ask you a question that yeah. I, um, um, when I, I was looking at another number talking about the um, VC dollars and. The um, United States is, you know, head and shoulders again, uh, above all other areas. But what's second is China. And mm. so, if you're talking about the global market and some of the challenges that we've seen again from the pandemic and supply chain and all of that, what what are you thinking is what impact is that going to have on kind of the way the way that uh, that innovation continues? I think. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is what you were thinking, but you know, it's important to keep an eye on innovation everywhere else, right? There are so many innovation hubs. Um, 
in 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 China, in Japan, in in Israel, in Europe. Um, there's there's a ton of different hotspots, especially when it comes to digital health. And there are all different types of payment models. I actually, one entrepreneur was saying it's it's a little bit of a pessimistic, but I think realistic point of view, which is, you know, the best products don't always win in healthcare. The best go-to-market strategies do. Because as we all know, who pays in healthcare? Is it Medicare and Medicaid and the health plans? Is it the employer? Is it the patient? Like the complexity of that and the reimbursement paradigm that we live in, it's pretty complex. It's tough to navigate it. And if you can crack that, like you're going to, you're going to go far. Hmm. Those paradigms look pretty different um, in places like Europe, places like the UK, where there's a single payer system uh, in China, where there is a lot more government funded healthcare, but there's a lot of also kind of direct to consumer plays. And so it's interesting to see kind of the, the ways in which innovation takes hold and can be tested, uh, in different, uh, in different environments that require different commercialization, um, pathways. So definitely, definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, very, I think, for a lot of people that um, that we work with and that listen to the Wonder Podcast, uh, this is a more specialized kind of conversation. But but because it touches all of us, it's so so um, intriguing and important, and and kind of we feel very vital to have the conversation um, relative to. If, if I bring it back to our world for just a second, yeah. we talk about place, you know, and people mm-hmm. in place and what the impact is going to be on that. And I will tell you, you know, we know what's happening with large um, healthcare systems if, by virtue of the fact that the um, the schedule or timeline for a major project is 10 years. So, you know, that's going to take whatever it's going to take, whatever path that is. We see a lot more going on in, um, in retail health and in all of those kinds of environments. And we also see in the um, life science biotech, um, there still is a lot of place investment taking, mm-hmm. going yeah. on, um, which, you know, kind of speaks to a more optimistic outlook on, you know, what that, uh, that market will continue to do over mm-hmm. you know, the next couple of years. Yeah. I think that the, the relationship between digital health and space, like space where healthcare is delivered is super interesting to me. Um, it's, I was just to give an example, I was in, um, I was in the Northeast last week, was chatting with a health system and they were talking about some of the newer clinics that they were rolling out. Um, would have smaller waiting rooms because they anticipated that they would be they would be able to be much more efficient in terms of the time between the patient arriving and then the patient being able to be shown to a room. That efficiency was going to be created by digital health tools. So things like being able to fill out forms electronically that maybe you would have previously have filled out when. Um, when you're in the office, like through a portal. Um, I think what's, you know, that's, that's a step in the right direction of convenience, but I think what is even more convenient. And I was chatting with a, with a founder yesterday. Um, what he is building is essentially an API so that if you as a patient want your data to be shared with a health system, with a telemedicine company, with a health plan, you can easily kind of sign in, fill out your identity information, but then this API would be able to pull in 
your insurance information, your medical information um, from different sources to feed it to the source that you are going to in that moment. So let's Mm -hmm. say that, and this company is called Flexpa, let's say that Flexpa integrated with um, a particular clinic and I was going to that clinic you know, they could send me an email that was like, Hey, Megan, do you want to get your information pulled um, from your health plan? So we can tell you what's covered your medical history. So you don't have to fill out all those forms like you normally do. I might say, Hey, yeah, that sounds great. Like I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I'm, I'm going to like, just put in my information real quick so that then it can populate. And like the power of interoperability, it's, it, you know, normally I wouldn't bring like interoperability and physical space into the same conversation, but it actually is related because if we can minimize that burden on patients of like ugh, having to carry their information, repeat their information every time they go to a new doctor or a new health system or a new clinic, like that actually has an impact on the waiting room. And do you need people in there for a lot long? Or are we really easing that kind of transition, that, that data transfer? So I'm super, super excited about stuff like that. And I think also like Telehealth just brings up so many different questions of how do we create an omni-channel experience so that certain things are happening in the home, everything from at-home diagnostics to uh, kind of care that's delivered through a live video to care and advice and coaching that might be delivered asynchronously through something like text. How do we integrate that home experience seamlessly when that person does need to go into um, into a clinic? I think, I think Mm -hmm. it's a super, super interesting question. Um, that just made me think about the, um, again, in this, in this, in the place conversation, the, the use of AR, VR, take it Mm -hmm. to that next level, you know, and what, what might that impact be and where there's a couple of, of avenues there, where might that be possible or where are you seeing it or hearing about it? And then, what are, what are the impacts of privacy on all of these things, mm-hmm. on yes. all of these channels? Yeah, it's a great question. I think VR, AR is a really interesting and exciting space. I think a couple things need to happen in the market for that, um, for that opportunity to really gain traction right now. Like most people don't have VR headsets, right? Like we're not, <laughs> we don't, we don't just have that. Like we have a phone, you know, a lot of the digital health telemedicine and apps are, are built for our phone. They are built for a tool that the vast majority of Americans already have in their home. The vast majority of Americans don't have VR. I don't necessarily think that that needs to come to fruition, but there definitely needs to be a more accessibility and saturation of the VR headsets becoming available if we're going to see this taking off. Um, and, and also just figuring out who pays for them, how does the patient get access to it, et cetera. So part of that kind of market needs to be figured out, but on the opportunity and clinical validation front, there's a ton of exciting things. I mean, creating an immersive environment, especially to help some with a beh- someone with a behavioral health condition is really, really powerful. So we've seen things around um, kind of PTSD. We've seen things around pain management. Um, we saw, we've also seen use cases from a musculoskeletal perspective. So you can imagine if you're trying to train someone to n- use their body in new and different ways and do particular exercises, it might be really powerful for them to kind of visualize that and see that and be guided in um, an augmented or virtual Mm -hmm. reality space. And then it also kind of gives, you know, there's the opportunity for sensors. And so then it gives a feedback mechanism for a clinician or a physical therapist to see 
you know, what is the mobility of that person? Mm. Um, and are, are they doing the exercises? Are they not doing the exercises? What might be challenging? And so definitely a lot of opportunity. And honestly, I could see, I could see these things being used in the home, but I could also see them being used in a clinic. Maybe those VR headsets aren't in people's homes, but they're in, but they're in a place like a clinic or a school. Maybe if you're trying to do something that's immersive for kids, um, in a place that, that people, uh, can, uh, can come and, and, and kind of have yeah. their therapy session with it. Huh? Um, Oh gosh, I just had a question. Wait, don't let it go away. The question was. Oh, you had asked me about privacy. Well, I was asking you about privacy. Privacy, you know, it, it, I mean, clearly, uh, well, clearly there are challenges and there are benefits, but you know, we know yeah. that, um, I mean, all of us have problems <laughs> with <Yeah>. privacy. <laughs> um, so, so to put it, the health, you know, into it, you know, you're, that, that personal information into it is kind of just amplifying that concern to some degree. So are there, are there new innovations or kind of shifts that are taking place in that arena? Yeah. So that, that company Flexpa that I mentioned, they, they give me a lot of optimism about people being able to decide where and how their data is being used. So it creates ease because I can kind of fill out the form and click a button to say, yes, I, you know, I want all of my information directed here. But what that's also doing is, is it's permissioning it. It's telling me what is being shared, who it's being shared with, and what it's going to be used for. And the what it's going to be used for is important because if I don't permission my data being used in a certain way, it, it, it shouldn't be used in that way. And I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish because I think that there are a lot of instances where data about us may not necessarily be protected as health data, but can still be construed as health data. So think about all the interactions and Google searches um, uh, and texts that are on my phone. I mean, conceivably, you could scrape um, and there are companies, you know, looking into like, how do I understand Menton's, Megan's like mental health or maybe mm -hmm. her yeah. um her her co mental health or cognitive health or maybe even her physical health based on the way that she's interacting with her phone based on her response time based on the sentiment of the messages that she's sending and so i do think that we are just producing so 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 much more data as individuals as a society and some of that data even if we don't perceive it to be health data can be construed in ways that makes assumptions about our health and then how is that being used? And so I really hope that innovators are always having these conversations and being really intentional with their users of what data are we gathering? How is it being used? And permissioning permissioning that kind of every, every step mm -hmm. of the way. Okay, the other question that I wanted to ask, and it kind of keeps coming up in my mind is the impact on providers, the impact on you know clinicians, the impact on um, the, the scalability of some of the, the innovations is kind of multiplying the resources that are required on the provider side. Yeah. 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 How does that, how's that conversation going? Yeah, I think it's, there's, there are real challenges. I mean, I think, um, providers are of course burned out. I think some of, not all, but some of that burnout, um, is due to, uh, the kind of tech that has not been particularly functional or user-friendly, let alone like delightful. Like it certainly has not been a delightful user experience. And so 
I mean, we see a lot of solutions really trying to solve that problem. Um, I think at the core of it, you need to reduce the cognitive load of clinicians. Um, It is not helpful to deliver a bunch of new data on someone's eating or sleeping habits if we don't have a means of analyzing that, understanding the insight, and then figuring out is there an intervention that I can deploy in response, right? If you haven't thought through all of those pieces, it is useless <laughs> to kind of integrate yeah. more data into the clinician experience. And so in a lot of cases, like even though we're like big data and AI and analytics and population health, I think at the end of the day for the individual clinician experience, like many times, like less is more. Um, and we really need to think about like, you know, you got to like bring the humanity back into healthcare. And I, you know, we're seeing some, some exciting ways to do that. But I, I think that like, part of it is making sure that these tools are really built in concert with the feedback of the users at the end of the day, that is the best thing that can be done, right? Is let's not build these in a vacuum and assume we know what nurses or physicians want. Um, that's another thing that I think it's not just relying on one member of the care team. It's not just having a physician-centric model. I actually think what's really cool about a lot of these solutions is that it empowers nurses, it empowers coaches, makes everyone more efficient and scalable in their efforts. And so I I think that kind of moving away from moving towards a model where those clinicians can really be proactive whether that rather than reactive is really important. I'll give you an example. We're investors in a company called Marigold. Um, Marigold started with um, in the behavioral health space and specifically people with addiction and substance use disorder. They realized that a lot of times those people get treatment in a clinic, then they're discharged and they resume their life. And there's just a really high rate of recidivism. Um, And so what Marigold does is it gives those people um, a digital app. It gives them an anonymous community, actually, to protect privacy. Um, But it gives them an opportunity in a virtual space to connect with others that are going through something similar. And then they do use AIML to do a sentiment analysis. So if I'm in that chat group and I'm saying that I'm having a bad day, maybe I'm saying that I'm considering using again or that I'm, you know, having, you know, really something serious, maybe even suicidal thoughts, those words, those sentiments are going to be flagged by the algorithm. And actually that flag is going to be shared with my care manager. So the care manager, instead of having no idea what's going on with me and maybe just checking in periodically, but not, not knowing if they're checking in at the right time can know, Hey, I got to check in with Megan because it seems like just her sentiment in these conversations, or maybe I haven't communicated at all. And that's actually a signal that things Mm -hmm. aren't going well, they can proactively reach out to me. So what I really love are, again, the solutions that allow those clinicians or care managers to be proactive, to intervene at the right time, um, but also like just, you know, makes their time more, much more efficient um, and, and targeted at the right, the right intervention mo- moment. And it's, you know, it's that right combination of you need, you need the technology in this case, but you also need that person um, that's going to have the conversation at the right time. So those are the types of things that we, we love supporting. Oh my gosh, Megan, you have shared so much. Um, I'm, my, my head is spinning um, in a good way. 
and I want to say that we are at the end of our, of our time, but we always like to ask, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think you, you just need to share something, uh, you know, something mm. to be excited about, something to be aware of? Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I guess just coming back to the space concept, I'm, you know, uh, architecture, space, physical space flows is are not something that I'm particularly deep in, but I've um, recently read some pieces that have really piqued my interest around just how we create healing environments. What does a healing environment look like, feel like? Um, you know, are there windows? Is there open air flow? Is there nature? Kind of the things that like feel healing to us, um, but may not always be necessarily conducive to like the medical environment that needs to have all of the beds and tools and tools and isolation and hardware and technology that doesn't always feel healing. So kind of the, the intersection of those two things is also something that's really interesting to me. Cause I think even though what I hope actually is that we kind of need less physical space for healing, because we actually are bringing a lot of the healing and management into the home. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also think, but, so I think that like how, how we can, we can create a more healing environment in those spaces and really is really important. And then as we're bringing more medical things potentially into our home, how do we still make it feel like home as opposed to a place that maybe has now been overrun with hospital beds and medical equipment and that sort of thing. So I think that um, certainly like I have, I have things to learn from you and your organization when it comes to like how we create delight and healing mm -hmm. um, in the spaces where we're really trying to get people to heal. That's such a great point. The, um, <clears throat> the we're seeing crossovers now between hospitality and mm -hmm. corporate. We're seeing hus you know, hospitality in healthcare and you're seeing that home that the hominess, if you will, um, in all environments. And so how, how does that make us feel? So to yeah. bring back to the wellness that we were going to circle it all back to the intention overall is to make people be their best wherever they are. And what does that mean? And it includes all of the, all of the health. Do you know the guys at mass design, Michael Murphy? Um, I don't think I do there? actually. No, I think I should hook you up with them. Yeah, because You'd have a really that. interesting conversation anyway. Megan Zweig, thank you so very much for sharing with us. We really appreciate your time always and your generosity. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it. the Wonder Podcast is available on all your streaming services. So we look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Thanks so much.